Welcome to a podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is, is Kelly Tappenden. I'm editor-in-chief of JPEN and the Kraft Foods Human Nutrition Endowed Professor at the University of Illinois Urbana. My guest today is Dr. Paul Wishmeyer, Professor of Anesthesiology and Director of the Nutrition Support Services uh, in the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado. And the paper that we want to discuss is appearing in the November 2012 issue of JPEN entitled Relationship of Vitamin D Deficiency to Clinical Outcomes in Critically Ill Patients. Welcome, Dr. Wishmeyer. Thank you. Glad to be here. To start, please tell us why you conducted this work. What was your motivation? So this study was inspired by previous small studies, particularly a New England Journal letter to the editor, which showed that vitamin D deficiency in the ICU may be occurring in as much as half of the patients that are being studied. And of course, the background to that New England Journal letter in 2009 is that vitamin D deficiency is perhaps the most highly publicized nutritional issue in the lay press today. Um, you know, you can find it in everything from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal, and it's supposed to help you run faster, be smarter, and perhaps even prevent cancer. And so there's lots of claims being made. And what we've discovered is many, many outpatients, in fact, in some studies, as many as 50% of the people living in the community are also vitamin deficiency. So one might guess that sicker patients coming to the ICU may also be quite deficient. And so we conducted a study um, utilizing samples from a prospective trial that was conducted in conjunction with Darren Highland at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And we had approximately 200 samples over the first 10 to 14 days of ICU stay. And we had with that clinical data that told us a lot about very precise data about their infection status, their length of stays, their mortalities, and their ultimate outcomes. And so we assessed these samples for vitamin D deficiency with the hypothesis that perhaps vitamin D deficiency would be associated with increased risk of infection, longer length of stay, perhaps worsening organ failure, and then ultimately perhaps might have a relationship to mortality. Okay, very good. Why don't you tell us about your results? So what we found was a couple of things. I think the first and most prominent finding was that looking at patients who were considered to be insufficient or deficient, and when our cutoffs that we used were you were considered to be vitamin D sufficient if you had a greater than 60 nanomole per liter level of 25 hydroxyvitamin D. You were considered insufficient if you were 30 to 60 and you were deficient if you were less than 30. We found that 82% of critically ill patients in our study were either insufficient or deficient by these standardized cutoffs. And we took these from the New England Journal paper and from other publications that had been used. Now, clearly there are other cutoffs people use. Some people use less than 20. Others use others. But we tried to use what was standard in the literature. We also found a significant association between vitamin D deficiency and the time to a live ICU discharge. So basically, this looked at how long you stayed in the ICU before you were discharged alive for those patients who survived their ICU stay. And 
there was a significant difference uh, with a p-value of 0.01 of patients who were sufficient getting out of the ICU much more quickly than patients who were either insufficient or deficient. So to put that into real days of ICU stay, the mean time to being discharged from the ICU alive if you were sufficient, or the average time, was approximately 5.9 days. If you were insufficient, it was 6.8 days, and if you were deficient, it was over 10 and a half days, so almost double the length of time if you were sufficient. So we also found that there was a trend towards a relationship of vitamin D deficiency to increased infection risk, and so this had a p-value of 0.1, and this was particularly true for pneumonias, and in fact, if you looked solely at the number of patients who got infection versus did not get infection, there was a significantly lower vitamin D status in those patients who got infected. And in fact, with patients with proven pneumonia or culture-positive proven pneumonia, there was a significantly lower vitamin D status in those patients who went on to get pneumonias. So this was another finding of the study that um, we thought was important. And then one of the things that we showed for the first time that hadn't been described previously is that we actually assessed vitamin D over time. And what we found was, was that vitamin D levels decrease over time with about 39% of patients who were sufficient at admission becoming deficient or insufficient during their ICU stay. So some nutrients we've noticed will become deficient and sort of stay at the same level. Glutamine is a good example of that. Vitamin D appears to continue to become more insufficient as patients stay. And then one of the final two things that we looked at was uh, organ failure scores, and there was a trend towards worsening organ failure um, in patients who had vitamin D deficiency. And then finally, we looked at mortality, and we did not find a significant association in this study looking at mortality in these patients as some other studies have found. So I think those are the key findings. Very good. I think it's very interesting to look at that temporal data and see how quickly the decline in, in vitamin D status is occurring. Do you have what would be a true vitamin D baseline sample, or do you know anything about these, these subjects' intake prior to illness? We don't know about their intake prior to illness. We do have the baseline sample at admission to the ICU, and that's what we did almost all of the comparative statistics based off of, based on infection and length of stay. But we don't know much about them prior to ICU stay. There, there is a very interesting study that was published just recently in critical care medicine in the last year that looked at a large number of patients um, in the Harvard hospitals who it's an 11-year multicenter trial that they did where they see patients in their clinic and track their outcomes over many years. And they looked at 2,399 patients who had been deficient within a year prior to ICU stay. And they found that being deficient in the year prior to ICU stay was significantly associated with both adjusted and unadjusted 30-day mortality if you were deficient to a level below 15. In their case, they used their cutoffs. And they also found an association with uh, increased infection. So there is a study that's just come out recently as well, actually was presented at some of the same meetings that ours was, that showed this association with pre-entry vitamin D levels. But we didn't have that information. But what we found is levels continue to decrease while they were in the ICU. Okay, so with an 82% incidence of suboptimal levels of vitamin D, that's really striking. How does this incidence level compare to that of the general population or other hospitalized populations? 
So it's very interesting, and it varies by age and actually by race. There have been some very surprising studies that even young, healthy adolescents have been shown to have a 52% vitamin D deficiency, less than 20 nanograms per mil. And it also appears that both nursing home and community dwellers have been in studies can have a 40 to 50% vitamin D deficiency. And race seems to play a very key role in this with Caucasian patients in one study who are over 50 having a 30% vitamin D deficiency, Hispanic patients having a 42% vitamin D deficiency, and African-American or um, African patients having an 84% deficiency. So darker-skinned individuals tend to have a much more severe vitamin D deficiency because their skin is less efficient at converting vitamin D. And that's all in healthy individuals, right? These were all in healthy individuals. These are volunteers coming off the street, which is really striking. So were you able to, did your sample size allow for you to do any sub-analysis to investigate those types of differences among race? You know, we didn't do that, but that is an excellent question. Unfortunately, knowing where the patients were enrolled from in Canada, it's a fairly homogeneous population. And so the majority of our patients were Caucasian patients with very few other racial groups represented. So that's unfortunate, but I think some of the other studies, and there have been a number of other trials coming out, um, it would be very interesting if these would begin to really assess that issue because clearly there have been even science papers showing one of the reasons the African-American population appears at a higher risk of TB is because of this lack of vitamin D and the vital role vitamin D plays in the immune system in fighting off infections, particularly respiratory infections. So that's an interesting point. We might hypothesize that there's geographical differences then based on the sun exposure or the lack thereof in various regions of Canada during certain months of the year. Absolutely. In fact, Michael Hollick, who's sort of the father of vitamin D in America, maybe the world, he has the New England Journal sort of review article he published. He's actually put graduate students on the roofs of buildings around the United States at different latitudes, and he's found that you cannot make enough vitamin D to be sufficient if you live north of Atlanta, Georgia, or Phoenix, Arizona, no matter how much time you spend naked on the roof. So from (laughs) approximately September to March, you are unable, no matter how much time you spend outside with most of your body exposed, mind you, on the roof of a building, this is what he did, you can't make enough vitamin D in those months. So clearly if you're a Canadian living not far from Toronto, you're in a very compromised position with the winter time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see other papers that follow this from different regions of the world. Absolutely, and this is one of the hypotheses as to why influenza spikes in the far northern and southern hemispheres, but influenza spikes do not occur around the equator. And that one hypothesis is this is the lack of vitamin D. Of course, there are other hypotheses that go with that. So getting back to these critically ill patients, your data certainly show that there's an increased time to a live ICU discharge associated with uh, admission with a vitamin D deficiency. Mm -hmm. And right now, ASPEN, the American Society of Parental and Internal Nutrition, recommends for hospitalized patients to have 200 international units of vitamin D daily for maintenance. Ultimately, what should the practitioner at the bedside do with the vitamin D deficient critically ill patients? Should they treat them? If so, how and what dose? So it's interesting, you know, as we've evolved this understanding of how much of the community's vitamin D deficiency, the therapy of the community and actual real 
pharmacologic data on how well we replace vitamin D has emerged. And what we found in the community is that most practitioners' guidelines now read giving 50,000 units a week or approximately 2,000 units a day to replace free-living community members, not ICU patients. Now, these doses have been in small studies looked at in the ICU and are not, and I can tell you from clinical experience as well, particularly with patients on parental nutrition, these doses of 50,000 and 2,000 a day won't replace the ICU patients. Their levels will not change if much at all. In fact, there was one study done in Austria where they gave 500,000 units as a single large dose, and they just nudged their patients into the sufficient range for about a week. So a fairly substantial dose and and a very difficult thing to correct in the ICU. So I don't think that we can actually shoot to correct patients in the ICU right where we are now with the data because, of course, the key point here is we don't have any outcome data saying replacing vitamin D to a level improves outcome clinically in the ICU. And I think that's a really key point to take away. I think these studies are desperately needed, and I think this is really our chance as a nutrition community, perhaps for the first time, honestly, to do the kinds of dosing trials that gastroenterologists, cardiologists, oncologists do when they study a new drug before moving into large multicenter trials, where I think we can look at secondary endpoints like key vitamin D-affected immune endpoints like cathocytin and bacterial killing and other. There's some very not too difficult to do laboratory endpoints that could be looked at to see if we're affecting what we think vitamin D will help the ICU patient with. That being said, what should the clinician do? I can tell you what our practice is. We do replace our deficient patients, but we use the standard community doses with the idea that perhaps at least we are providing some circulating vitamin D, not expecting them to correct to sufficient levels probably. And so we typically go with what we know to be sort of the safe and routine community doses of 50,000 units a week or 2,000 units a day, whichever is easiest for the particular practitioner to administer. And I think these are reasonable and safe things to do. The NIH is currently sponsoring a trial of um, a small trial of vitamin D repletion, looking at 50,000 a week, 100,000 a week, um, and some other doses, looking at some of these secondary endpoints that may begin to yield some data, but but we have a ways to go in this area to really answer the question. For more information or to view this article, please visit us at jpen.sagepub.com.